You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your hosts, Chris Jennings and Dr. Mike Brazier. Hey everyone, thanks again for joining us here. On this episode, we're going to connect with one of our regional science staff to have another discussion focused on snow geese. I'm first of all joined here in in the studio by my co-host Chris Jennings, and we are joined on the phone by Dr. Mark Petrie, Director of Conservation Planning in the Western Region. Mark, thanks for taking the time to join us. No problem, Mike. I think to to begin with, you know, we want to... uh, introduce you to our listeners and have you give us, <clears throat> give our listeners just a uh, sort of overview of, of what you do for Ducks Unlimited, where you are. You're out of the Western region, but your office is actually up in uh, up in Washington. So just give us a thumbnail sketch of what you do for the organization. Yeah, Mike, I, um, our, our regional office is in Sacramento, of course, but I actually work out of a, faller, a smaller field office in Vancouver, Washington. Um, you know, in a real general sense, I guess what I do is I um, I work with folks um, here in the West to figure out um, where we actually need to be working on behalf of waterfowl, um, what we need to be doing on behalf of waterfowl, maybe how much of it we actually need to do. So just kind of what the shape of shape of our program should be here in the West. You've been with Ducks Unlimited for quite a few years now, right? Remind me of how many years that is. Yeah, I've been out here about 20 years, and then I spent uh, I've spent my first five years of my career with Ducks Unlimited in Memphis at National Headquarters, and then I moved out here about 20 years ago. This is probably where I make a joke about you getting old, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, for the listeners that may not know, Mark and I have known one another for uh, – for 15 plus years and interact a lot on on uh, work issues as well as personal issues you know just sort of going hunting together and 
Um, so yeah, we kid around a lot and, and, uh, but this is the first time we've had a chance to get you on the podcast and discuss, uh, something that I know you've been working on and yeah, it's, it's a, as I kind of introduced, it's about snow geese and, but it's a different angle of, of the snow goose, uh, issue in North America we've had from previous episodes covered some basic ecology of, of snow geese and with, with Ray Alisoskis back, I think they were episodes 36 and 37, my notes here say. Uh, we also had Drew Fowler on episode 41 talking about some condition bias in uh, hunter-harvested snow geese. And then we followed those up with a pretty neat discussion with Rocky Rockwell on snow goose ecology specific to La Perouse Bay. And that area sort of being the epicenter for where the the uh, hyperabundance issue of snow geese really, uh, really t- took off. And so now, though, we have a, a another topic, another element to this this greater discussion that you're going to bring to us. And you actually had an, um, an article in a in the January February 2020 issue of the Ducks Unlimited magazine. The the primary title of that was uh, Snowstorm, and it talked about uh, an, an area of this snow goose issue that that not a lot of people have really have thought about outside the real detailed conservation conservation planning work that uh, folks like yourself and and I have done in in our jobs and so we wanted to get you on to follow up on on that uh, that discussion a little obviously we'll reference some of what you described in the article but this medium here the podcast gives us an opportunity to discuss some of that in uh, in, in a bit more detail so we're going to jump right in here in reference to that article, and I'm just going to give you an opportunity to talk about your co-authors and then also just sort of uh, big picture what uh, what stimulated uh, th- this interest. And I guess what I will do is sort of just frame up what we're, what we're going to talk about here is that um, you know, the, the role that this – the hyperabundance of snow geese plays in, in, in how we think about habitat needs for, what, for ducks – on the on the non-breeding grounds, that's sort of the the, the essence of this discussion. So, uh, tell us about your co-authors, and then generally what uh, how you got interested in this topic. Sure. Well, before I do that, Mike, I'll just profess I am not a uh, I'm not a goose expert by any means. I um, in writing that article, we really I relied um, heavily on folks like Ray Alice Oscus for information. So, just to be upfront about that, uh, my co-authors are better versed in in geese than I am, but, um, those are Mike Casaza, Chris Nikolai and, uh, Cliff Feldheim. Mike is a, uh, is a research biologist with USGS in uh, Dixon, California. He's done a lot of work in the, in the central Valley. Um, Chris Nikolai, um, is now a, uh, more recently is a research scientist with the Delta waterfowl, um, with Delta waterfowl. And, uh, Cliff Feldheim is, uh, an employee with the California department of water resources. So, we all came to this with a little bit different perspective, but um, my co-authors and myself, you know, we, we've primarily been focused on um, waterfowl issues on the wintering grounds and primarily ducks, I think, for the most part. And um, we've worked together on Central Valley issues in the past. Um, the snow goose issue, to my understanding anyway, has mostly been a breeding ground issue, concerned about damage to Arctic uh, nesting habitats, those kind of things. Well, we were coming at it from a little bit different perspective in the Central Valley um, and and in North America as a whole, really, is that we have, you know, we've seen tremendous increases in the number of snow geese in some key terminal wintering areas, places like the Central Valley, Gulf Coast, um, Mississippi Alluvial Valley. Um, the number of snow geese, the number of geese in general there has really increased over the last few years. And from a duck perspective, we began to wonder, hey, because ducks and geese are, are often using the same food resources, can we get to a point where 
geese actually might be competing with ducks uh, for food resources on the wintering ground. So that's we were kind of coming at, at it from the perspective of guys who primarily worked on ducks in the wintering ground and now wondering, hey, uh, do you, can you reach a point where you have too many geese and, and that begins to have some kind of impact on wintering ducks? So that's kind of where we were coming from and where the article, at least part of the article, was coming from. So, Mark, maybe to uh, to provide some additional context here requires some basic understanding of how we do conservation planning for waterfowl during the non-breeding period. And this is a topic that I uh, suspect you and I can talk about in, in great detail on maybe a subsequent ep- episode. But, but basically uh, – Tell us, tell our listeners about the, the basic assumption we make when identifying conservation planning or, and habitat objectives for, for uh, waterfowl during the non-breeding period. And I'm kind of hinting at the bioenergetic models here. Sure, sure. Well, well kind of the key, the key assumption we make for wintering ducks, at least, is that they're most limited by food on the wintering grounds. So when we, set, when we sit down in places like the Central Valley or the Gulf Coast, we try and figure out how much habitat these birds need. That's really kind of a, a food-driven process. We, we calculate essentially how much these birds need to eat over the course of a winter. And that's that's a that's at the heart of a lot of our conservation planning in these key wintering areas. Well, when you introduce kind of geese into that equation um, and step back from that, you begin to ask yourself the question, well, how much, how much are these birds actually consuming and how much of that, of those food resources are also you know, available to ducks or less available to ducks because of growing goose numbers. So that's because we take a food energy approach and because geese eat many of the same foods as ducks, at some point we begin to think of this almost like geese as a sense, as a, as a source of habitat loss for ducks. That's, that's how I think about it anyway, Mike, is, is at what point do they begin to consume food resources where in fact there's a significant impact on ducks. Yeah. No, and I think that's an interesting aspect because of what we've always heard. And I'm, I come at this from the uh, perspective as, as a waterfowler and, and not having a PhD, obviously. And, um, you know, you hear a lot about, or I guess I should say waterfowlers have always heard over the course of the last two decades that the, the threat from snow geese is focused entirely on the habitat and the tundra and the damage that they're doing there. And there's probably not a duck hunter in Mississippi, Arkansas, um, that in Missouri that wouldn't say, oh my gosh, there's so many mm-hmm. snow geese out there now. And and there are people who have even voiced this concern, you know, just a layman looking at their rice field and thinking, oh my gosh, is there going to be anything left for the ducks? Um, so, so this is very cool and should be, you know, should really come up um, in conversation with hunters. You know, people can kind of reference this. Um, as part of the article, there was a really cool um, study that kind of focused on how much rice per um, acre is in a rice field or, or what certain species of geese consume in a rice field. Is that something that, and can you kind of elaborate on that, on kind of how that study was done and where you kind of pulled that information from this article? That study was um, really wasn't aimed at geese per se. It was aimed at figuring out how much rice was left after those fields were harvested. And usually what happens in the Central Valley and, and, and other places too is, a rice field gets harvested. It may sit there for a month before it actually gets water. So in the Central Valley, you'll harvest a rice field late September, early October, and then um, rice farmers will put water on that field, say, in November, mid-November. Um, a lot of those fields are light, right, or they're leased, or um, we're putting water on them to decompose rice straw. So there's this interval of you know four to six weeks between these fields are harvested when they actually get flooded. 
And in this study, they looked at what happened over that four to six week period. And what happened was about half of that rice actually disappeared and, you know, raises the question, well, where did it go? Well, some of it, you know, might be consumed by birds or, or rice rats or something like that. But we suspect a lot of it went to geese, which are essentially field feeding in these dry rice fields. Um, ducks are much less likely to feed in these dry rice fields. So we, we know they're probably not the reason for the loss, but geese will readily feed in these dry rice fields. So by the time we're actually putting water on them, in some cases, there's only half of the food that was initially there. And we suspect that a lot of that food was essentially eaten by geese in that interval. And so there's that effect um, that they essentially reduce those food resources before we make those fields kind of, um, you know, in, put it in a flooded conditions that ducks would, would actually use it. And then, of course, after those fields are flooded, geese continue to forage in them. So um, that's where we think a lot of that rice ultimately ended up. Mark, it might have been whenever you were preparing this article, I remember seeing a few emails back and forth between yourself and our chief scientist, Tom Mormon. And and I think it was the nature of this particular issue in that, you know, asking about how common is it or how common do you see these situations where geese will get into the fields before the before the ducks do, before they're flooded. And I think he, Tom even referred to it as, yeah, I've been I've had some of my leases be goosed mm-hmm. a few times, you know, where early in the season you get uh, snow geese or white fronts in there that 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 eat all the food. And and that's the issue. That's the key issue in, in our that we're talking about here. And the bioenergetic modeling, the conservation planning, the basis for conservation planning in the non-breeding areas is really, I mean, it's it, in many ways, it's a food accounting uh, process. And you, in order to figure out how much habitat we need to be providing for waterfowl, you have to know how many there are, what species they are, because the bigger birds, the geese eat more than ducks and, and all this kind of stuff. And so you kind of add those up. And invariably, we ran into this on the Gulf Coast when I was doing some of the conservation planning work down there, the snow geese end up accounting for significant percentages of, of the overall food demand among the waterfowl uh, community. And so that's, that's, uh, that's sort of the, the baseline understanding of what's happening. And then your, your article, uh, Mark, pointed out that, um, that the growth of the snow goose population – is what's exacerbating this effect. You know, it's one thing to have a stable snow goose population and to be able to account for the amount of food that they require. But the issue that we're seeing here, uh, and certainly out in California, uh, uh, is just like the Mississippi Louisville Valley and Gulf Coast, historically anyway, um, snow goose populations are continuing to increase. And so with those increases comes an increasing demand on their behalf for food, and that comes at the uh, potential exclusion of food for ducks. So... Um, so that's the way that we kind of wrap all this up. Now, what I want to do, though, is talk a little about what you're seeing specifically in, in California because, as we've talked about with some of our previous guests, the snow geese in these different wintering areas come from different colonies, uh, nesting colonies. And so so out west, talk a little about uh, – tell us what you know about the source of snow geese out in the Central Valley or out in the, the western U.S. in general and what's happening with those populations. Sure. Well, just to back up a little bit, Mike, um, our concern about geese in, in specifically in the Central Valley um, is more concerned is is more geared towards the future. At this point, we have a, we have a lot of geese in the valley right now. We have probably, you know, we probably almost tripled the number of geese in the valley over the last say fifteen or twenty years. So that that's obviously a concern from a food standpoint in terms of the food available to ducks, but. We're actually as interested in what's going to happen maybe over the next 10 or 15, 20 years. You know, where are these goose populations um, or, or where, have, 
what should we expect in terms of goose populations in the valley going forward? And part of that requires an understanding of the of the breeding colonies that are now supplying the Central Valley with geese, whether they be whether they be snow geese, whether they be white fronted geese, whether they be Aleutian Canada geese. Um, all those populations are increasing. So we're really interested in where those colonies are headed in the future, um, because at some point we will have too many too many uh, geese if those colonies were to grow unchecked. And so one of the things we've kind of discovered talking to Ray and, and Jim and others is that a lot of these initial concerns in the Arctic um, about um, goose overabundance, essentially, you know, eating themselves out of house and home, um, the collapse of some of these colonies, some of that concern maybe was a little bit premature. And what we've learned is, is that in general, it appears that the Arctic um, has room for more geese. Um, that some of the some of the destruction we saw in places like La Perouse Bay, pretty localized and, ha- and happened under pretty um, pretty kind of uh, special circumstances, if you will. Large numbers of geese staging in relatively small areas uh, resulted in a lot of that kind of damage, which didn't replicate itself throughout the Arctic. Um, and so, one of the things we're interested in is is kind of being nailing down the colonies that are supplying the Central Valley with geese and where those colonies might head in the future. Um, so some of the major colonies that supply the Central Valley with geese include include the Western Canadian Arctic, the YK Delta in Alaska, uh, the North Slope in Alaska, uh, Wrangell Island in Russia, which is kind of um, emblematic of maybe what's going on with growing snow goose populations or growing white goose populations that are that are in the Central Valley, the Wrangell Island population really kind of knocked around 150, 100,000 geese for a number of years. Um, and over a short period of time um, uh, is now at really 400,000 geese. And last year, actually 700,000 geese um, essentially left Wrangell Island in the fall. That included breeding adults and the young that had been produced. Wrangell Island had something like a 97% uh, nest success rate. And so a lot of those geese are ending up in the Central Valley. Um, I think our counts in the Central Valley, if I'm not mistaken, went from about 1.3 million a couple of years ago to over 2 million this year. And I'm presuming some of that is coming from Wrangell Island. But um, uh, so so we're obviously very interested in where where breeding colonies like the, like the Wrangell Island colony could ultimately end up in terms of, you know, is there a ceiling on the number of geese out there? You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. 
Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation, united by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation, take it outside. Mark, I, I know you also referenced this in the in the article, and we won't go into many details on this, but there's an element of the work that y'all are doing right now involving uh, Chris and, and Mike and, and others, Cliff and, and others, to radio mark a number of geese uh, and tracking those birds back to those breeding grounds to figure out exactly what you're saying. And so we, we'll probably save that discussion for, for a later episode on the details of that. But uh, just another example of how we're using some of our new technologies to understand some of the causes and mechanisms of uh, some of the issues, conservation issues that we're, we're facing. What I do want to spend at least, I have a question for you here, uh, a few minutes I want to spend on. I know from some recent emails that you and I had that you had a chance here recently to meet with the guy that that, that conducts or runs the the research study over, over there at Wrangell Island, and you have to help me with his name. But basically, I just wanted to see if he had any any nuggets of information for you with respect to recent growth rates, or have they seen any recent... Um, um, declines in reproduction the way that they've seen in the central arctic uh, that ray and rocky talked about well mike uh i can't his name is vasily and i forget his last name so i'm you know you're gonna have to maybe you're gonna have to research that and then plug that in but uh um yeah so so vasily was uh vasily actually stopped by to see me last friday him and don craigie were here and of course i had a lot of questions about wrangell island um, because Wrangell Island supplies so many of our birds here uh, in the Central Valley. And, uh, you know, I asked him, what's responsible um, for the, you know, really rapid increase in, in the Wrangell Island colony that we've seen over the last four or five years? And a variety of reasons for that, but a lot of it is related to warming. Um, that part of the world is is warming at a uh, at a higher rate than other parts of the Arctic, actually. And um, so what's happened is... A at one point, at, at one point in time, there was a relatively small part of Wrangell Island that um, was essentially suitable for, for for nesting geese. Well, and that had to do with you know where the snow melted first, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what's happened is with the warming trend over the last few years, more of the island has opened up to nesting geese, and that's really allowed the colony to expand. That and um, uh, some other reasons that relate to a much higher nest success. I think last year they had about 97% nest success. Some of that has to do, I think, with um, uh, maybe changes in the predator community. Maybe the predator community is, is really becoming swamped because there's so many geese. But but Vasily's impression was uh, just a just a kind of uh, a pretty rapid warming trend on Wrangell Island these last few years. It just opened up the island, um, provided more suitable nesting habitat, and the, and the and the geese have been taking advantage of that. That's pretty remarkable. I I think I asked Ray the question if, if he had any insights from Wrangell Island whenever we had him on, but he really didn't. I think it had been a while since he had spoken with Vasily. And, uh, of course, from those discussions with Ray and Rocky, we learned that in recent years, the uh, production from the Central Arctic uh, and Hudson Bay colonies was very, very low. And then that's that's a, a remarkable yeah. to hear the contrast with, with Wrangell Island. Drastic difference. Yeah, Vasily even, even suggested that 
they were even seeing some immigration from places like the Western Canadian Arctic or the Central Canadian Arctic to Wrangell Island, which I found was pretty amazing that birds would actually respond in that way. But Wrangell Island was becoming so attractive that it was actually pulling birds um, off colonies that were far to the east. That was my understanding talking to him anyway, which is, which is you know, something I wouldn't have expected to have heard. Hey, Mark, as part of this article, you, you, you brought up some very good points as far as the new liberal or new, I guess, you know, the conservation order that went into effect in 1999. I can't say new, but liberalizing the hunting regulations um, to kind of control this population at an early stage. Um, and, and I think what the article brought to the point was hunters aren't nearly as successful at harvesting snow geese, let alone adult snow geese, which is the important part, and kind of explain why it's important that, you know, all the numbers are based on this adult harvest rather than just snow geese in general. So if you back up, you know, the initial goal of, of, of the conservation order for mid-continent snow geese was essentially to reduce that population um, by half in about 10 years. I think that was the goal. And the way to do that, they recognize is, look, we have to reduce adult survival. If we don't reduce adult survival, we're not going to be able to get there. Shooting juvenile birds simply doesn't get it done. So that was that was kind of the goal. Re- focus on adult survival and reduce the population um, by about half in 10 years. When, when judged that way, um, the order hasn't been successful. Um, we certainly haven't reduced the population by 50%. And we've had really little impact on um, adult survival, almost no impact. And so you kind of have to ask yourself, well, why is why is that the case? And I think there are there are, uh, there are a couple probably reasons for that. And again, I'm speculating a bit here and really relying heavily on the answers uh, from people like Ray Alazoskis, Jim Leafler, and others. I think there's a recognition now that that there were way more lesser snow geese at the time that the conservation order was enacted um, than we had estimated. Um, and essentially, um, by the time we got around to the conservation order, the horse had left the barn. There were something anywhere probably between 10 and 15 million snow geese at that point where we thought there were maybe 3 million. And so I think they had got to the point where hunters simply couldn't control them, even with the generous regulations offered by the conservation order. They were just too many of them. And I think the other thing that kind of worked against success, if you will, is because adult survival rates are so high, because we weren't able to reduce adult survival rates, these populations are just full of highly, highly educated birds that have acquired years and years, really, of wisdom when it comes to evading hunters. So, you know, as many snow goose hunters know, unless you get kind of ideal uh, ideal conditions, it's very, very difficult to kill these birds. So, you know, I, I think those things, two things have worked together um, to kind of... Um, ultimately make make it uh, or ultimately work together to not get where we wanted to be in terms of the conservation order reducing these populations by half. Yeah, and you had a you had a really great quote from uh, Ray Alasaskis in the article and it just said it seems that mid-continent lesser snow geese are very good at eluding death. And I think every <laughs> snow goose hunter knows that and I think, you know, you're seeing that in just exponential numbers now. You know, because of the conservation season, you know, these populations, these birds are exposed to hunting for, you know, the majority of the year, if you will. And um, they just, they've gained a lot of experience in eluding hunters. And um, I think that goes a long ways to explaining why the conservation order didn't reduce lesser snow goose populations to the the level that we had initially hoped. Yeah. And I have one question for you, Mark. How does the limited water availability in the Central Valley impact um, all of this, you know, does this kind of that at all plays a part as as part of this research and this study, does it not? At this point, we 
when we're thinking about ducks and geese potentially um, competing for duck, for food resources in the Central Valley, we're mostly focused on rice. Um, we don't think at this point that there's a lot of competition for food resources in wetlands, if you will. Um, we think the most likely place they, they compete for food is, is in rice fields. Um, from that standpoint, the more rice fields we can flood, um, the better off we are for ducks. Because what we assume in the valley is, is that unless a rice field is flooded, um, ducks essentially won't make use of the food resources in that rice field. And we, we, you know, there, there are about 500,000 acres of rice in the valley. Probably somewhere around 300,000 of those acres get flooded in a given year. So the more of them we can flood, um, the better off, I think, ducks ultimately are because we're making more of that rice available to them, even in the face of growing goose populations. So that the amount of rice that's ultimately flooded is a question sometimes, uh, or in some years anyway, of water availability. So that's where water availability would come into play. Now, I, I, you know, I think I need to be clear here is that we don't think we're at the point where ducks and geese are competing to competing for food resources to the point that it's detrimental to ducks. Um, when you look at body mass of ducks in the Central Valley, they're, you know, they're fat. They seem to be in really good shape. Our concern is more about going forward. Hey, what if we continue to see goose increases at the rate we've seen over the last 10 or 15 or 20 years? If we continue to see that kind of rate of increase, um, we suspect there will be problems um, for ducks in terms of getting enough to eat in the valley. This is a, a conservation issue that's that's rather perplexing, again, to, to go back to the initial concern of the increasing abundance of snow geese, it was, it was directed towards their impacts on other birds that, uh, that bred in the same region where their nesting colonies were. And then that's where we thought the impacts were going to be felt most. But now we're learning that it looks like some of those effects could be strongest in some, under some circumstances uh, on the wintering grounds. And so the, uh, the group of waterfowl, the group of birds that could stand to, uh, to lose the most, you might say, would be, would be ducks. And that's, uh, if all of that kind of comes to, to uh, fruition, ultimately what would happen is you would have food limitation really starting to happen on the, on the wintering grounds. And then, you know, that becomes how the, the goose population uh, is controlled, you know, through the whole population discussion, uh, population dynamics discussion. Now, I don't know if we're seeing that yet. And Mark, you, you referenced some of the work on on duck body mass estimates out in the uh, out in the Central Valley. I don't know if we have good data on that uh, here in, in other parts of the country, in the Mississippi Central Flyway, actually. I, I think we might. Uh, I think there might be a few studies that have looked at that, and, and all indications are that birds continue to go north in in, in pretty good condition. But, um, but nevertheless, it's a pretty... Uh, it, it's a pretty sizable challenge if all that stuff does continue to happen, if those those populations do continue to grow. Yeah, and, and just kind of return to the question of water availability in the Central Valley for, for a moment. You know, probably the worst case scenario here, Mike, would be um, that we would not, we would continue to see growing numbers of geese in the valley. Less water would be available for winter flooding of rice and maybe less water available for managed wetlands in the Central Valley. And so essentially what you would have is fewer food resources available to ducks because of these shortages in water supplies, which would really have no effect on geese because they can take advantage of these agricultural foods, whether they're flooded or not. Um, and I think those are the kind of conditions that we're most worried about going forward. And neither of those are unreasonable. It's not unreasonable to expect that goose numbers will continue to grow in the future based on what 
what we know about um, the potential for the Arctic to go to grow more geese at least at least the colonies that are now supplying the Central Valley. Um, so I and 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 it's certainly reasonable to expect that there may be less water for winter flooding of rice going going forward, given you know um, issues over water supplies in the Central Valley over the last few years. So both of those are not unreasonable expectations. And if those things come together at some point, then I think you're potentially looking at a consequence for ducks. You know, it's we we've talked about you know what if any it's it's important to, I think to understand to try and understand what these potential impacts might be at some point. And that includes forecasting where these goose populations are headed. Um, but it's not clear to us what, you know, what the solution would be um, beyond providing more habitat for ducks in the Central Valley to offset some future habitat losses or future food losses that we can attribute to geese. I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure that hunting has a role here in terms of you know additional conservation seasons that for the Pacific Flyway. Before we started recording, Chris asked, asked a question just kind of out loud here about whether we think any of what's happening with snow geese is influencing or affecting the distribution of ducks. And I can just tell you, I don't know the answer to that. You know, you could you could draw some connections uh, between food resource availability and you know, geese competing for that. And yeah, you could certainly argue that it would, and certainly at local scales, but at larger scales, I don't know. But what I do find myself wondering if the expansion of snow geese into other parts of the Mississippi Central Flyway um, isn't isn't an artifact of that, like we live in West Tennessee and we now get snow geese flying over all the time and you have some experience, Chris, from Indiana and you guys Absolutely. get snow geese in, in Indiana that you t- traditionally didn't. And just by sheer numbers, you know, yeah. that's they're competing for food, mm-hmm. potentially running out of food. And that could also be a disturbance issue. We yeah. know about the interaction. We've talked about that, and, yeah. Um, anyway, that's just one of those, uh, another fascinating uh, angles to this discussion and, and what we're seeing on the ground and uh, just illustrating that we don't have all the answers to these these things. We can document some of the issues, some of what's going on, but we really don't know how those uh, work all the way through the system. Um, but Mark, I think that's going to wrap it up for us here. We have appreciated you coming on and sharing some of your time with us and exploring some of these, uh, exploring this issue in a bit more detail. And, you know, we hope people through a combination of reading your article and listening to this podcast, now have a have an appreciation for how snow geese and their hyperabundance affects not only what happens on the well, in their nesting colonies in the Arctic, uh, but also the way they uh, potentially are competing for foods with ducks down here on the wintering grounds. And so, just another thing for people to think about when they're out there in the field. So, Mark, again, thank you for your time, and thank my co-host also Chris Jennings here. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. All right, guys, happy to do it. Thank you. Hey, Mike, that was great getting Mark on. Um, I think the show really kind of explained a few different things to me, and a couple of things that I took away from it is, one, we've always paid attention to uh, snow geese endangering habitat in the tundra, you know, in the Arctic. Um, Now, Ducks Unlimited, Ducks Unlimited Science team is actually looking at, you know, snow geese potentially endangering habitat and food availability on the wintering grounds, and that's very important for our audience. So It's a good example of how Ducks Unlimited uses science to stay abreast of, of what's happening uh, on the landscape and the way populations are interacting with those uh, those habitats. And so, yeah, I do want to take a, take a moment here just to thank our special guest, Mark Petrie, for joining us here. We also thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great job that he does. I also thank my co-host in studio here, Chris Jennings. And as always, we thank you, the listeners, for taking your time to, to, to join us here. And we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.